interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking the secrets of success. Welcome to the Private Equity Podcast with Alex Rawlings. Welcome to the Raw Selection Private Equity Podcast, interviewing the leading private equity executives and unlocking their secrets to success. So joining us today is Adam Coffey from CoolSys, who is a chief executive and author of the Private Equity Playbook. Welcome and thank you very much for sharing your insights today. Glad to be here. Let's, uh, let's do this. Let's have some fun. So Adam, for the listeners, sorry, that haven't read your book, uh, give us a kind of 60 to 90 second breakdown of, uh, of you, please. Sure, absolutely. You know, when I, whenever I meet somebody for the first time, which includes, you know, probably the majority of your listeners, four things I like to cover. You know, there's kind of four things that lead me to where I am today. First of that is service in the military. The military taught me something about leadership, discipline, and teamwork. So young guy coming out of high school, military kind of slapped me into adulthood and, uh, and taught me how to work, you know, as a, an effective part of a, of a team. So I give the military credit for that. Without the military, I'm not here today. Number two, engineering background. So engineering made me just a meticulous planner. Um, I never shoot from the hip. Sure, things happen like global pandemics that would cause you to, to change on a dime, change direction. But I always have a strategic plan in place. There's always a direction. I'm only, always articulating a, a vision and a shared purpose and then breaking down you know, where I'm headed into to bite-sized pieces. So engineering made me a meticulous planner. Third thing, General Electric, uh, not the GE of today, but the GE back in the Jack Welsh era. Uh, I spent 10 years at GE, first as an engineer and then crossed over into business. And that was during the heyday of GE when GE was really America's most admired company, uh, one of the most admired companies on the planet. Stock was splitting every two and a half years. It was the Jack Welsh era. And GE was a really special place back then to, to hone your craft. And in my case, it was, you know, General Electric taught me how to run a, a business. And so a, a lot of gratitude towards uh, all my mentors and the people at GE I worked with. And then fourth and final is really just experience. I've spent 20 years as CEO of three different national service companies that, that I've built for, for private equity. And, you know, the result of that is, uh, uh, you know, I've made every mistake in the book a guy can make and I've learned from them and 20 years experience, you know, definitely shapes who I am today. So those are kind of the four things about me that, that lead me here. Perfect. Well, I'm going to kick off and dive into a couple of that then. What took you from the military to GE? And then what took you from GE to what I regard as normal businesses? So at, you know, in the military, I, when I went in, I had two goals and objectives. I was a young guy. I wanted to find financial security for my family, even though I didn't have one at the time. And then I also wanted to retire early. Uh, and, and so being in the military, I went in there to, to build skills and to, to launch an engineering career. And I knew I would never retire from the military because my first goal and objective was financial security. And, and so I was chasing something more than I could make you know, in the military. Call it chasing money, chasing title, young guy looking for an adventure. So I knew I would definitely leave. So when in the military, 
for the specific goal and objective of getting an education, of learning my chosen field, and then getting out, taking that and parlaying that into General Electric was just a natural thing to do. Uh, The second piece of that, then you asked what took me out of GE and into a a private equity-backed adventure. You know, back in those days, I had no idea what private equity even was. I mean, we're talking 20 years ago. You could measure the number of firms. They were measured in the hundreds, not the thousands. And capital under management back in those days was measured in the hundreds of billions as opposed to over $4 today. So it really wasn't about private equity. It was more about I was still chasing title and money. So I'm at the Fortune 500 kind of you know epitome at GE at the time, and here's a chance to go be president and CEO of a company. And so I really went to my GE corporate mentors and I asked, you know, I'm like, boy, I'm struggling with this decision. Is it better to be one of a thousand general managers, you know, kind of in the mid level at, at GE? Or is it better to be president and CEO of my first company, even though it's a much smaller business? Uh, and I think almost to a person, the, you know, the overwhelming advice that I got from GE people at the time was to leave. You know, go be a president. I remember the words, once a president, always a president. Go be a president for the first time. Great advice. So I, I took it and left. That's fair enough. Makes sense. So what one mistake do you see either private equity firms or their portfolio companies making? So today's world, $4 trillion plus assets under management, very high multiples being paid for companies, which is compressing you know, your ability to make, call it the average three to four times return on a, on a private equity you know, investment case basis. And so the biggest thing that I see happening today really has to do with what I'll call trust, speed, and talent. I think that in today's world, we don't have the luxury of time when you're in a five-year PE hold period where your sponsor probably paid too much for the asset up front to generate a three to four times multiple of invested capital. So I think mobilization, talent to value, you know, finding the true potential of the business, regardless of whatever the buzz phrase is that the PE firm likes to use, this needs to happen immediately upon acquiring an asset. Uh, I think too long, we're, we're letting the first year and a half to two years of a hold period go, and we're not digging in fast enough. Do we have the right executives? You know, do we have the right people in the right seats on the bus? What is it exactly that we're going to attack you know, over this five-year hold period? And who are the key people that are going to make that happen? I'm a huge believer in a, a guy named Sandy Og, who came from Blackstone and Unilever, who is all about talent to value. Do you have the right people? What is the skill set these people need to have in order to attack the uh, various initiatives that you have in place over this uh, whole period? So I think we're taking too long to get busy and get at it. There's almost too much of a honeymoon post-close and we're not getting to work fast enough and we need to be quicker from a, a private equity and company perspective to make this happen in a more timely fashion. 
Okay, interesting. So I want to dive in some more detail there. But before I do, I just want to mention, so I appreciate that um, um, Adam's got a book and I don't want anybody listening here and going, okay, this is just another guy who's not doing the the day-to-day, who's obviously, you know, never run a business, never done X, Y, and Z, and is uh, is here to pitch it. You know, I approached Adam to come on this because I, I found his book through my research and it's very good. But, you know, Adam's grown a business from this private equity backed. He's taken it to one exit already. He's already on a big route to double that revenue again, which he's already done once. And he's already tripled that EBITDA. So this is coming from somebody who really knows what they're talking about. And just for any listeners that are thinking, and I, I would think the same, oh, somebody who's written a book, this will be somebody who doesn't know anything about it. And uh, <laughs> I'm going to switch off, which you'd be fair, you know, be fair thinking that because there's plenty of people who've written books that have no idea about business or management. You know, they've done a degree or worked at BCG and then gone straight out to it studied it rather than having it this is somebody who's a practitioner who's immersed in it right now but has also um you know done the long hard yards uh, to operate there so when we talk about talent which funny enough is is one of my favorite subjects adam so i'm glad you've mentioned that but what do you a what do you mean talent to value and b when you're looking at that because loads of firms are like yep yeah, we need the right people but how do you know if somebody's going to be right how do you know? What, what, what do you do to, to kind of assess people and understand if, uh, if that person is going to be the right person to bring that talent to value, as you mentioned? Sure. So, and so I'm happy to use my current company as kind of an example on, on that discussion. You know, when, when I think about the typical private equity modeling, you know, a private equity firm is going to buy a company, portfolio company, and, you know, they make their base case, their upside case, their down case. Here's how we're going to get a three times multiple of invested capital. You know, we look at growth trajectories. We look at all of, all of these different things that a company, you know, brings to bear. And then you close the business and everybody just kind of puts that back on the shelf. And then the company goes back to doing whatever it was normally doing. Now, typically when I run a business, you know, um, multiple hold periods, multiple investors as I'm building a, a company, and you know, t- typically, I'm going from one range to another. I'm going from 250 million to 500 million, or 500 million to a billion, you know, in someone's hold period. And you know, we like to actually model, you know, and and I and I recently for my second book, I did some research, you know, around typical compound annual growth rate in a business when I get there is about eight percent. You know, so a business that's growing at about eight percent. If you think about the law of seven, you know the law of doubling. You, you know, uh, an asset that's growing at ten percent a year is going to take seven years to double in size. Well, that's too long. That takes too long from a, a private equity perspective. That's not not efficient enough. Typically, I bend a curve and I take an asset that's growing in the single digits. You know, call it six to eight percent, and then within a year, year and a half, it's growing at twenty-seven to thirty percent. In order to bend that curve something about the business has to change. Can't be status quo post-transition from entrepreneur to private equity or from one private equity group to another. You have to really attack this. So I spend a lot of time working you know, with a leadership team, working with investors to formulate what are the five or six initiatives, the five or six things that are going to drive the specific growth. But then we take a look even further and say, what is the skill set of the person you know who's going to drive this from x to y over the the, the time period so i have a company with almost 3000 employees now but we've identified 23 jobs as being critical in taking the company from where we're at today call it in the 600 million range 
up to 1.2 billion, you know, and from 60, 60 some odd million of EBITDA up to 125, 150, there are 23 people who are going to work on a total of about eight different initiatives. And we look at each initiative and say, what's the specific work to be done? Oftentimes, you know, we, we hire people that we think are just, you know, hey, great, great person, right? They, they got a track record, they've been successful. And so therefore, they're going to automatically be successful here. But the work to be done here may be different than the work and experience that they've done elsewhere. And so the better that you can model the specific job that's going to be done, the talent that's required, the better you're able to create the specification to say, does the people that currently have these seats on the bus, do they have the skill set that's required to get us where we need to, to be? And if we need to make a change, what are we really looking for? How do we know the difference between 10 very highly competent you know, candidates? So I'll give you one example. I wanted to punch up organic growth you know, in this business during this whole period. I brought in one of those famous consulting groups that you mentioned you know, and paid them a lot of money to say, hey, all your, your work is around you know, sales. So let's take a look at my industry, my business. How does my customer buy? How do I build a sales organization that matches up with the different verticals and the customers that I have and how they buy and their habits? And then let's blow this thing up because I know that my current organic growth sales effort just sucks and isn't going to get me to where I need to be. So we, we put that together. I, I, we went out to hire a VP of sales. And now I'm specifically looking for, show me a VP of sales who has been involved in blowing up a sales organization and rebuilding it in flight and did it during a buy and build when somebody bought 30 companies. And they did it from a few hundred million to over a billion dollars in size. And then when we were interviewing, we used that standard to line up against the different various candidates that we had. And lo and behold, we find the person who actually knows my customers, different industry, but was selling to customers. He was doing it in pest control, not selling refrigeration or HVAC service. And that person was part of a big global roll-up, led sales, and it went from a few hundred million to well over a billion, was very successful. And so we bring in the right talent. And then lo and behold, during a global pandemic, I added over 6,000 customer locations last year, new customer locations, and had the best organic growth year in our company's history. So it's all about really identifying what's the specific work to be done What's the skill set of the person in that role? And then making sure that we have the right talent on the bus that can execute the very specific mission that takes you from X to Y. I love that um, answer, Adam. I, I truly do. I think when when I talk to to my clients about it, whether it's private equity or a, or a portfolio company of a PE firm, and we talk exactly the same. It's what does success look like? What does the outcome look like? And what are the, the particular actions that need to happen? Here's an interesting one for you. You know, of those 23 jobs I mentioned, nine of them did not exist during the last hold period. So it not only helps you identify who on the bus is critical to future success, but where are there gaps in talent inside the organization where we might actually have to go out and recruit new people to do new things in order to hit 
our growth, you know, objectives. So example, you know, in operations, we want to improve margins as everybody does. We've identified that, geez, it would be great if we had a Six Sigma black belt or someone who worked on the business rather than in the business. And their focus was strictly to look at process mapping, difficult things that we do, find bottlenecks, you know, streamline, you know, invest in technology, help us to become more efficient as we're scaling you know, where a problem today at twice the size is going to yield, you know, much more difficulty. Let's fix them on the journey. So there's an example of a job that we ascribe tremendous value to within the organization, building a team of people to help us with process improvement, technology investments, and that this role didn't exist in the last hold period. You mentioned we did 18 acquisitions. I'm learning that my bottleneck in M&A is not my four deal professionals that are that are, are in-house employees, but it's the fact that half of my deal team winds up getting sucked in on the integration side and spends way too much time post-close of a transaction, which takes them out of the ability to hunt. So if I want to go from four to six companies a year to 10 or 12 companies a year from an acquisition perspective, I need to build an integration team. So new role, integration manager, we expect that we'll add additional resources around that, but I want my deal team focused on deals and then throwing them over their shoulders to operations where an integration team you know, catches the ball and, and then focuses on integrating the business into the company. So you know, it's important to remember not just who you have, but to also identify roles that didn't exist that, that you need to fill because they're critical to future success. Absolutely. And the so looking at the acquisition side, you will see, as you mentioned, we've, you've done 18 acquisitions um, on this and you've got a huge amount planned to continue the growth and consolidation of what is a very fragmented, in, uh, fragmented industry. What advice would you give a, a chief exec who's listening, who's in the similar kind of shoes as you? You mentioned the integration side. You know, you've got a business, you've acquired them. They're very different in, in multitude of facets to your company. What advice would you give them on that integration piece? Because I see so many businesses getting this wrong. Yeah. So, so to me, great, great question, by the way. To me, a lot of work needs to go in up front, and that's in target selection. So uh, I'm a very transparent CEO. Culture is my thing. I run service companies. You can't store service on a box in a box and put it on a shelf and sprinkle it on broken equipment. So if you can't store your company's product in a box, your company product is actually people. And so I focus on building culture to get an engaged workforce that takes care of customers, which give us more stuff to do and revenue just kind of rains from the sky. But on integration, you know, when you're thinking about companies to buy, I create and establish a set of what I call filters. So there's 4,500 potential companies for me to buy in North America. And right now North America is where we're, we're building and, and so in looking at those 4,500 candidates, how do I tell good from bad? And so I establish filters. EBITDA margin as a percent must be above a certain level, union versus non-union. You know, it could be customer vertical serve, very important during a pandemic. Geez, if I'm going to buy a refrigeration service company or an HVAC service company, I would rather have one that works in uh, grocery stores or inside pharmacies, you know, a CVS, Walgreens, you know, or essential businesses versus a company that's working in non-essential businesses and, and getting hammered. Same skill set, different profile. So that could be a capability. I look at businesses that are more service, a little bit less new construction, you know, and that also just has to do with 
you know, the dynamics around being recession proof, being pandemic proof, what have you. So, you know, and then you get down into kind of the cultural fit. You know, what is the goal and objective of the entrepreneur who's selling? You know, are they going to be sticking around? In my particular case, I bought 18 companies, 16 of the entrepreneurs are still in my business today. So if I'm going to be keeping the entrepreneurs, I have to think long and hard about, are they going to fit from a cultural perspective, from a leadership perspective, what's motivating them? Are they just trying to cash out their chips and ride off into the sunset? Or do they, or are they maybe, you know, not ready to retire, but they want a diversification of their own personal, you know, portfolio and fortune, and they want to keep going and become part of something that's bigger in this company, they can do that. So, I would say the key to being successful on the integration side is to develop on the front end a set of filters that will help you, just like talent to value, will help you make better choices on the companies that you purchase. And then having that as a, as a guide, you know, do you have a scalable platform? You know, and uh, if you don't, are you investing in technology to give you a scalable platform? You can't integrate something if you don't have a scalable platform. And so that would help inform you on what's the level of integration that makes sense given the company's current technology base that it has. Uh, And then thirdly, you know, so once I've figured out who to buy, I know how far I'm going to integrate them based on my own technology and my, my investments. Now I can actually get busy on the integration side and I can be very methodical. So I'll go back to my engineer roots you know, we have a very long, detailed Gantt chart, you know, by department, what's IT going to do? What's HR going to do? What's finance do? You know, all the different aspects, there's probably a thousand plus line items that that are tasks that are going to need to be uh, accomplished. And in our case, you know, as we're doing enough of them, this is not something that ever goes away. There's 4,500 companies to buy. If I buy 50 in five years, I still got 4,450 left to go. So I'm going to do this. It needs to be muscle memory. Let's build the team of people whose job it is to integrate. And I think too often companies make mistakes on integration uh, because everybody in the company today has a day job. It means doing an integration is an extra you know, layer of work to be done. And people's focus is distracted because they're busy running a day job. You need to think about having dedicated resources on the integration side who marshal the other resources within the company, but it's their full-time job to own that playbook, to own that thousand line item, you know, spreadsheet and Gantt chart and, you know, can really exist for the sole purpose of making sure that we onboard correctly. So buy the right thing, make make certain that you know you're aligning kind of the 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 skill set of the people you're buying, you know, and laying good expectations, being transparent up front and then having a sound process on the back. It all comes down to process systems and making it, sure it you've really got does. that it, it sounds like a lot of it's on that front end and making sure that that's right, which you know, one bad acquisition will zap you know, so much energy out of a leadership team. I made a bad acquisition once. Actually, I take it back. I inherited a bad acquisition once and it probably took 80% of my leadership's focus for probably a good two-year period in order to fix it. So if you spend more time buying the right stuff up front rather than just buying for the sake of buying, you can prevent that energy suck, you know, which is how do you fix a bad acquisition? 
Absolutely. So you've, um, you know, we mentioned, and I'm going to reiterate, you know, you've more than doubled the revenue of the business. You're going to take that to 1.2, 1.4 billion from a 200 million um, start when you had it. You've tripled the EBITDA and obviously you're going to even um, quadruple and whatever it goes on from there, 5X, 6X and that. What's been your biggest challenge that you've had to overcome during that process and how did you overcome it? Yeah. So a, a couple of things come to mind. One is culture. You know, you mentioned culture. So, you know, we, we are focused on employees and culture and, and that's, that part's easy. But when we go back to picking entrepreneurs, you know, when you buy 18 companies and 16 of the entrepreneurs are still here and they all had their own distinct way of doing things and they all built a business and they've never had bosses before, you know, that adds a layer of complexity. And I identified that before I ever took the job. You know, this industry, because industrial service contracts, the nature of them in the US is regardless of length, they can be canceled with 30 days notice. It means that I'm buying a relationship and I need these entrepreneurs to be here because they're employees, you know, I'm a trades-based business. And so employees, you know, are being courted all the time to leave and go work someplace else. I have to be the employer of choice. I have to be the acquirer of choice. I have to do a careful job vetting. But even when I do all of that, you know, my biggest, you know, concern heading into this role was the fact that I'm going to have at one point 50 entrepreneurs who all rode their own, you know, destinies as a, a sole owner. Now I've got them as shareholders in CoolSys. And so I, I use, you know, a rollover investment uh, to align, you know, all of our, our expectations. I don't use earnouts. I hate earnouts. And so I, I'm focused on, no, if you're going to, you know, let's roll over, let's make you a shareholder in the mothership. And now we're aligned and now we can all work together. But even, even then, having said all of that, I still have a lot of personality, you know, personalities to manage. And that is my biggest layer of difficulty. So that's the first. And I saw it ahead of time. And, and I'm still here, still being very successful, but I was cognizant up front that that will be my issue. I need to focus on having relationships with entrepreneurs and making sure that those entrepreneurs can work together. Uh, so that was the first. You know, the second issue, geez, you know, throw in a global pandemic, why don't you? And so our business has many different customer verticals. It has many different uh, disciplines. Uh, I have a construction business, you know, or an install business, we call it you know, installation, you know, construction during a pandemic was hammered, you know, and, and certainly we're on the commercial side. So commercial construction kind of grinded to a halt. That was a challenge. You know, I work in a lot of different customer verticals, restaurant and retail, big challenge, you know, in a, in a global pandemic with shutdowns and restaurants closed and what have you. I remember, you know, one of my largest customers, you know, is a, a household name brand over here in North America, and they had 14,000 locations. And at the height of the pandemic, you know, fully a third of them were closed. So I had revenue disruptions in service in what I'll call non-essential verticals and then also in construction. Meanwhile, you know, our sales effort was focused on essential service, essential businesses. And we had a, a bang up year last year and added 6,000 customer locations, you know, or about 12%, you know, increase in just the, the number of locations that we were servicing. So great job by them. So quick focus on, okay, what's broken? What's not broken? How do I, you know, repurpose resources and quickly get focus on, you know, what is an essential business? Uh, and so I, I would say that you always have curveballs coming at you like global pandemics. 
you know, or recessions or, you know, civil unrest, whatever the case may be, th- those things do happen in life. And, you know, and then, you know, the, it was kind of also the devil that I knew ahead of time where I knew that having a bunch of, of entrepreneurs around would be very different and difficult. You know, in my last company, I bought 34 companies and put them together and created a billion dollar, you know, commercial laundry company. But there I had a scalable platform. I had an industry with bulletproof long-term contracts and the entrepreneurs were not staying. So of 34 companies bought, literally, I think it was one entrepreneur stayed and the other 33 left the business. And, and so you have to work within the strengths and the confines of what your situation is, you know, understand what the issues and problems are, and then just, you know, you have to, you have to get through it. So we, we talk a lot in private equity about that exit. It's the, it's the holy grail in, in the private equity world. It's what they're all looking for until that's happened and then it's the next deal. Um, but obviously from a chief exec or C-suite perspective, that's what you, you're chasing. You know, you've taken um, one business from, from uh, Audax to, to Aries um, with regards to private equity firms. What advice would you give somebody who's going through that transition or aiming to go through that um, from selling a portfolio company from one PE firm to another? Sure. So I've done that eight times in my, in my career, you know, across three different businesses that I was building. And, it, you know, I, I really, you know, even me, a guy who can articulate reasonably well, it's my one superpower. I can talk a PE firm into paying too much for a company that I'm running uh, and, and I can do it with passion. Um, you know, and I, so I'm going to use a, a little bit of a political, you know, aspect to this, not stating something political, but I'm going to go back to Barack Obama. You know, what did Barack Obama sell the American people? He sold them hope. What the hell is hope? You know, can you store hope in a box? Can you put it on a shelf? No, you, you know, it, it's intangible. And what Barack Obama had, and just to, to not be beleaguered by one party, I'll also say Ronald Reagan also had, you know, because these are probably the two most uh, skillful presidents in this particular pursuit. They could articulate a shared vision that others could see and, and back and, and jump in and believe with, with two feet. And, and so, you know, both of those two leaders were really strong. You know, when I think about taking a business from one private equity firm to another, you know, it's just another process, right? We're going to hire an investment banker. They're going to have the same confidential information memorandum template that they used in 50 other companies. And, you know, I'm going to do some fireside chats. We'll send out some teasers. You know, I'll do a, you know, some management meetings. And, you know, I'll tell you that even after 20 years, I still practice. I still practice my pitch. You know, what's the message? What do I want to articulate? I think of my management team and I think about how am I going to keep them on their A game when they're doing back-to-back management meetings, dinners every night? You know, how do I keep the energy level up, you know, in passion? And, and I play this thing I call management bingo, you know, ma- management meeting bingo. So, you know, we'll create weird off-the-cuff off phrases and you'll get bonus points if you're a leadership team and you're presenting and you use this catchphrase like, that dog don't hunt. You know, so you got to weave in. So here's the 50 things that you can weave into a presentation and people are going to keep score out in the audience. And so I distract my team, but we practice and we put in a lot of prep effort. And I'll say that every meeting matters, you know, every meeting matters. And then every dinner matters, you know, and you can't let your guard down ever. 
But I think that the biggest key, you know, uh, if there's a lesson for private equity, <clears throat> what I like to do is a year before I'm going to be in market, I like to hit what I call as the circuit, you know, and go to the private equity conferences that are sponsored by investment banks and they bring in, you know, 15, 20 companies to speak before 100 PE investors. And I like to get that CEO myself or the leadership team, senior team, kind of geared up, you know, for interacting with the investment communities. We're getting ready to come to market. It's a good thing. It's a good time. At the company level, I'm transparent. And I'll tell you why. So I have 3,000 employees. All 3,000 employees know we're owned by private equity. They know what our EBITDA is. They may not know what EBITDA stands for, but by God, they know how much of it we have. And they know that we're going to be selling the company every, you know, three to five years and sooner is better than later. And and we're going to, you know, and I'm transparent as can be. And the reason for that is, you know, I like to hold a process in the open. I like to leverage my strengths as a company. I want people to be able to come into my headquarters, not hide in a conference room at a local hotel. You know, I want to be able to leverage my strengths. And so I do that by being transparent. And I talk to our our employees all the time via video, uh, via email, you know, in person when I can. And it's all about, here's what we're doing. Here's why we exist. Here's where we're headed over five years. You know, I'm going to bring a shareholder in here, you know, and as we're getting closer, you know, I'm talking about it constantly so that the sale process is not a mystery. So I think, um, you know, in today's world, the world is volatile. Things do change on a dime. And so I, I would encourage private equity firms to not think in terms of everything. Well, if, if, we, if we're getting to a three bagger, let's go for a six. You know, I think time is not our friend. And when you can build a business that is hitting an inflection point and is getting kind of over that three times multiple threshold, you know, you really need to think long and hard about hold period because you might be running, you know, or this business might be a set of movie theaters and next month may come a global pandemic. And then your three to four bagger just disappeared and all of a sudden you're left holding an asset that will never recover. So I think today the market is volatile, multiples are high. I think you need to get out of the gates early. And when it's time to make a transition, when that rocket's ready to fly, push the button, don't wait on the launch pad, hoping for a bigger rocket. So that, that's kind of how I think about it from a, an exit perspective. What's the story? What are we going to do for the next whole period? You know, not every private equity group is going to take something from, you know, you know, use Audax as an example. They buy companies in the lower middle market space and they take them up to what I'd call the mainstream middle market. But as they've gotten bigger and their funds have gotten bigger, their focus hasn't changed. That's what they do. If they've got more capital, they just buy more of them. So they're very disciplined in their approach. And I think a lot of private equity firms are disciplined. We buy assets at this size. We sell them at this size to the next guy. And so I think it's know who you are, know what the expectations are up front. Leadership team, be transparent, be focused, focus on what we're going to do during that next whole period that's different from this whole period and sell it with conviction, you know, sell the box of hope, you know, in order for others to, to see the vision and want to be a part of that vision. And so I, I think that, you know, all of this can happen, you know, as you're going along, it doesn't need to be, oh, this year's a sale year. 
hurry up quick. What are we going to do different? I think we're acting that way every year and it yields better outcomes, more predictable outcomes, higher, you know, higher MOIC, higher IRRs, you know, and in 27 months, I was able to take the smallest company I'd ever run, you know, and turn it into a four times multiple of invested capital and a 56% IRR. You know, when you get those kind of returns, you know, don't, don't sit around waiting for six, for a six bagger, you know, take it and run. Interesting. I really like your transparent approach. Uh, and everybody in the company knows, you know, is, is I think a great comment you said there is, uh, you know, not everybody knows what EBITDA is in the business, but we all know what we're on and we all know what we're going for. And that's that kind of common goal, that common vision, and everybody's on the bus to go in that direction. Um, and what I really mean by that is I, I do explain what EBITDA is. But, yeah, you know, I appreciate that. A guy out there in a truck may decide not to tune in. You know, he may decide, okay, you know, I get the gist of that. Don't need to understand that. So everybody can be selective, but the information is there if they want to consume it. Yeah, I think that's great. And there's a lot more, you know, guys, um, this isn't a plug for, uh, for for Adam's book. There's a lot more in there. And having read it, there's all sorts about your background and experience of what you've done is called the private equity playbook. Something that, that is, fascinates me about the fact that you've written that is obviously that you're doing what you're doing right now. Um, and you've taken the time to, to do that. And I think you mentioned either you've written a second or you're in, involved in a second, second book that is. It's something I'm thinking of definitely doing in the future once I've built that skill set and knowledge even further. No doubt it's going to be on the on the talent side. What what was it that led you and made you think I need to write a book on this? Let's get what's in my head down on paper. You know, it, I would say that everybody's got at least one book in them. Um, I currently have three books in me. Second one's going to come out in a couple months, uh, and it's it's called the Exit Strategy Playbook. So okay. the private equity playbook was all about what is private equity. Why should I care if I partnered with one? How would I look at it? What you know? What, what would it look like after you know? After I made that that leap of faith, and it's it's written for you know the entrepreneur or the the mid career Fortune 500 transitioning exec. The new book is focused entirely around I'm running a business, and it, you know whether I'm an entrepreneur or I was hired by private equity to run a business. It's not just about private equity. It's also about, you know, the, what, who's the universe of buyers? How do I match up, you know, my goals and objectives with the universe of buyers? How do I build the advisory team? How do I prepare the company in the years leading up to the sale in order to make that, that happen smoothly and, and to get maximum value? A little bit different um, spin on this. But, you know, I, I would say that my first book, it was, it's almost like a dam. So you have a desire to, 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 to write a book. You've, you've mentioned that. I've been thinking about this for 10 years, you know, for 10 years. You know, one of the things is, is interesting about my life. When I was a younger person, you couldn't get me to stay in a classroom. I would do anything to get out of the classroom. And, and you know, so, I mean, I wasn't all about, I wanted to live, not spend my time in a classroom. You know, as an older guy now in my mid fifties, you know, I've spent 10 years as a guest speaker at UCLA, you know, amongst other places in the business school. And what I find is, you know, the most rewarding work I do in life today, I don't get paid for. You know, I, I love, you know, talking to 70 executive MBA candidates, you know, who are mid-career struggling with choices and, you know, direction and, you know, helping to what I would call shape the future leaders of the world. And, you know, in these classrooms, I mean, these are people from all over the globe. It certainly isn't one pocket. You know, I always ask the question, how many people in this class were born outside the United States? And it's usually at least 50% of the class, you know, the hands go up in the air. And, and, and so it's truly a global world that we live in. And 
I really enjoy giving back to the business community. You know, from a, a monetary perspective, I've been blessed, you know, and I accomplished that goal and objective back when I was 17. You know, I want to find financial security for the family. Check. You know, got that. Want to retire early. Well, still want to do that. But, you know, as, as I was going through life, you know, this book idea was rolling around in my head and I got to share a secret with your thousands of, of listeners, you know, out there. And, and that is the book originally was going to be a pivot point in my career. So I had been a CEO for a long time. I was going to run the business for Audax, sell it, and then walk out the back and pivot. So as a CEO of 20 years experience, um, I know that I can impact one company. And, you know, I, I don't want to say that it's boring, but it's, I've been doing this for 20 years, you know, and at some level I'm looking, you know, what's next, what's my next challenge. And so originally for me, it was, you know, I can impact five companies at a time. I can sit on boards, you know, maybe I'm an operating partner at a PE firm, you know, maybe I'm a portfolio support partner, you know, whatever that case is, I can help more than one company at a time. You know, I can impact five companies at a time. I just need the right role. And so originally the book was my career pivot point. I'm going to pivot, you know, and I'm going to do it on the back of what hopefully was going to be a best-selling book. And, you know, what happened? Well, I took the company to market and decided to stay. <laughs> and so I'm still here. I never made that pivot. You know, you know, it's going to come eventually, you know, and, and I'm, I'm 56, you know, so at some point it, it comes. But uh, I'm having fun. I'm engaged. And, you know, by God, I'm going to get this company to 1.2 billion. I'm going to take it out again. And, you know, as I look at my track record here, you know, if I can get a four times return on investment every three to three and a half years, you know, maybe I need to stay here, you know, and, and so maybe, you know, maybe this is one I'm going to ride, you know, until the end, but somewhere there's going to be a pivot. Uh, and so the book was originally to serve as a pivot point. And when I was thinking about that book, there were actually three books in my head, you know, that kept coming back to the surface. And I had to picture, you know, which one am I going to do first? And so this was the first. And why do it? Because there's such explosive growth in private equity. So many people being recruited by you and others, you know, into the world of private equity. And there's no base of understanding, you know, executives today, if you gave them a private equity test based on my book, with just basic concepts, everybody would flunk it. You know, the only news you hear about in in private equity generally tends to be negative. You know, there's a negative connotation, you know, all those rich people and the carried interest and, you know, some guy made billions and then he ran for president and isn't he evil because he destroyed companies. And I'm thinking, you know, I spent 20 years building culture and building cool companies that people like to work at and the growth rates are huge. And, you know, when other companies are laying off in a recession, I'm hiring and, you know, and I'm growing during a pandemic. And, and so, you know, from my perspective, the private equity I know for the last 20 years is very different than the private equity I hear about on TV. And unfortunately, you know, I, I remember being in a private equity partner's office one day and the guy showed me when I hire a new analyst, you know, or I have a transitioning executive, here's the book I give them. And it's a 1700 page legal book. And it's the driest thing you couldn't get through if your life depended on it, you'd fall asleep. And so my book was supposed to be kind of the primer, you know, the primer, however you want to want to say it, you know, it's just like, a, hey, what is private equity? How does it work? What's the nuts and bolts behind it? And I originally wrote it with one goal in mind. And that was, I wanted it to be a cross country book. So you could take off from New York, you know, or LA, you know, or London, pick your city, 
and you could uh, have a drink, you know, have some some peanuts, kick back, eat your awful first class meal back when they used to serve them, you know, and then decide, do I want to do email or do I want to read a book? And in a five hour flight, you could do all of that. And my book takes about three and a half hours to read. So depending on length of flight, you can certainly knock it out once you get into it. And when you land, you will have learned a ton. That was my goal and objective. And uh, hopefully I think I, I accomplished it. I've been you know, blown away by the, the, you know, the weird thing about my book. Sales this February are better than sales last February are better than sales the February before that. Over a two-year period, my book continues to gain steam. You know, it was number one in private equity for uh, two years on Amazon. And, you know, and it still pops up into number one in like eight different business categories from time to time. But more and more people are discovering it and using it as a resource. Private equity firms are telling me, I make every incoming associate read it because it does a good job of just explaining, you know, the, the world that they're entering. So PE firms are using it with their employees. Transitioning executives are using it to learn about private equity while they consider a phone call from you about a job opportunity, you know, in a PE backed firm. You know, the entrepreneurs are reading it to say, okay, well, I, I am going to sell my company. What is private equity? They keep calling me. And is this a good thing to pursue? And so the, the book just kind of took on a life of its own. And, and it's, uh, it's, you know, a, a great work of fiction goes on the bestseller list. And then eight to 12 weeks later, it comes off. And then, you know, in a year, it's being sold for four bucks, you know, at the discount booksellers place. You know, this, this book seems to keep, keep growing and it's got legs. So, been, I've been very fortunate and blessed, and I appreciate everybody in the world who's uh, who's bought a copy. Yeah, well, look, um, as I showed you earlier, we've got ours uh, uh, right here, which we use as an executive research firm, and the guys in the firm read this book. Well, thank so you. Can, you can thank have you that as that. addition to your uh, to your list. Uh, with the guys it was never about money either. I'll tell you, it was never about money. I donate one hundred percent of all my royalties to charity. Well, that's that's fantastic, um, and uh, uh, good on good on you for, for for doing that. So, and I don't think a book is about making money. I don't think anybody no. I know that's written a book kind of like it's it's more about position and getting uh, getting your getting your word out there and your thoughts rather than uh, I don't I don't know many people have become rich off a book. I'm sure somebody has, and somebody would argue <laughs> that differently. But uh, I think in the most part, it definitely sits that way. So my favorite subject is talent, as we kind of touched on earlier, Adam. Your, you know, I don't think any, I think everyone who come, listens to this podcast is going to agree the amount of passion and energy and drive that comes across with the way that you communicate and speak. And I hope that really does come across on on the the kind of audio side of the podcast. What are the three attributes that you believe make a top performer? So. Uh... Yeah, it's interesting, you know, when you when you think about that question, you know, uh, so I, I've already touched on them, you know, transparency to me is really important. If you're a senior leader, it, it, you know, you can't operate in a vacuum in today's world. You know, the employee base in today's world is more street smart and educated than any other we've ever seen. And, you know, based on generational, you know, positioning, what people want is different too. So I think leaders who can be transparent, you know, uh, do better than those who try to hide, you know, the, the good, the bad, the ugly. Uh, I think leaders need to be engaged. You know, an employee needs to be engaged. And in today's world where there's a lot of people working remote, it's a new adventure. You know, we're all Christopher Columbus sailing across the ocean, you know, in this particular case. 
you know, or, you know, pick your favorite explorer from, from, from way back when. And I think the world of business has evolved so much over the last year, you know, probably done 10 years worth of evolution in a very short period of time. So being engaged means something different today than it did two years ago. But at the same time, the fact that you need to be engaged as a leader is as important. And I think you then need to also be flexible. The world around us is changing very, very fast. And, and a lot of that has to do with just technology in general and the information era, social media, and the, 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 the news comes at us from a lot of different sources and it comes very fast. You know, there is no delay. I'm 56. If I go back to when my career started coming out of the military as a young engineer, there were no computers on people's desks. There was no voicemail. There was no email. Um, it, you know, how, how did we survive? You know, I, I had a pager, a little thing that went beep, 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 and I had to go find a payphone when someone was trying to reach me. Um, but it, it's just, we've evolved so much. The world is happening much faster. I think that today's leaders need to be much more flexible and they need to be tuned in to change. You know, so the world is sending us a message right now at large. Doesn't matter what side of the message you're on, something is changing fundamentally, you know, on the planet. You know, when you, you think of diversity, equity, and inclusion, you just think about all the things that have happened with the global pandemic. And, you know, it, it's like the world, you know, if you're going to be a leader in today's world, you need to be transparent, engaged, but you need to be flexible. You need to listen to what the world is telling you at large. And you need to move faster. You need to be able to make pivots and to say, geez, you know what? I didn't think of that. You know, so you not only have to then be flexible, you got to be open to change. You know, the world is changing. You have to read the tea leaves. You have to understand when the, the world is trying to send you a message. And you may not always get it right, but you need to be flexible and engaged. And, you know, those are the kinds of words that I think about. And then finally, as I touched on with the Barack Obama and the, the Ronald Reagan story, you need to be able to articulate. You need to be able, you know, you know what? Today's worker doesn't just want to work and get a paycheck. They want to know what this company believes. They want to know what this company thinks. They want to know what the core values are. They want to know how they make a difference to society, to society in, at large. And, they want to come down on the right side where they think the right side is of all of these things that are happening in our, in our world today. And so I think that leaders today also need to be very articulate. They need to get over any fear of speaking. You know, their managers manage things, leaders inspire people. You know, it's far better in today's world to be a leader versus a manager. If I could have one superpower, it would be, I want to be able to articulate a vision like Barack Obama did or Ronald Reagan did and get people to share, you know, and to, to believe in that, that shared vision for the, for, for the future. And so I think skills of leaders are changing. You need to really be able to articulate that vision. You can hire good managers. You can hire people who can, can fill in skill gaps that you may have as, a, as an individual. But if you really want to hit the C-suite someday, if you want to be a, a CEO or, or a successful entrepreneur, you better be able to articulate a vision. So transparency, be engaged, be flexible, and then be able to articulate your vision. And the 
You mentioned earlier about the private equity having, you know, somewhat of a tainted uh, reputation on the market. There was a big one that happened in, in uh, I think they, I think you have it in in the US or had it in the US, which was the Toys R Us deal, which which landed with KKR. That really got hammered in the media uh, across Europe because it was that kind of, you know, as a kid, a lot of people had been there. They had a lot of emotion attached to it, and it was a good opportunity for. Uh, obviously a slow new news week, but it was a good opportunity for the news to uh, to really play on that. What what do you love about private equity and also what do you hate or if hate's too much of a harsh word, what do you dislike about it? Oh, I have a military analogy that I think is just so poignant and applicable to that question. I think the entire time you're in the military, for those who have served, uh, bless you, thank you for your service, you think about how many days it is until you get out. You know, the entire time you're in, you, you focus on when do I get out? You know, and I mean, you wake up in the morning, you say 632 days, four hours, five minutes, you know, until I'm out of here, you know, and, and your entire focus when you're in is getting out. Once you get in, you know, once you do get out, you then look back and you forget about all the hassles, all the heartache, all of the, the struggles, and you remember only the good parts about your service and you remember the friendships that you developed and, you know, the bonds between people that were so strong, never be strong like that anywhere else in your life. And so then you think back the rest of your life with pride about being a veteran and the struggles that you went through just fall away. And I think for me personally, working with private equity, there is a love-hate relationship. There's a very high level of intensity. And, you know, at times, you know, it's a very difficult journey, but, you know, then comes the payday, right? Then comes the exit. So you spend three, four five years really working hard and there's passion and there's conflict. You know, someone is constantly pushing you to do better. And, you know, it, I, I almost equate that really to being a professional athlete, you know, and, you know, if you're at the top of your game, you still have to practice, you know, and, you know, you can't just show up on game day and play the game. You have to practice. You have to work hard off season in order to be good in season. And I think private equity is very much like that. It's the epitome of what I'll call business as a professional sport, you know, and it takes an engaged person who can really work hard, is constantly being kicked in the butt. There'll be good days. There'll be bad days. And, you know, at times you can really get down, you know, in that struggle, you know, of the hold period. And then comes the payday. Then you look back at what you created. How many jobs did you add? How big did the empire grow? And, and then you, you look at the multiple it sold for. And you're like, oh, my God, I just made how much? And, and then there's the feeling of accomplishment. So I think that working with PE, there is love, hate. It's a, it's a professional sport, to be sure. There's no lazy days, you know, in the private equity world. You have a, a short hold period. You're trying to triple, you know, or quadruple, you know, an investment, you know, a, a, on average. And it takes a lot of effort and work to do that. And so I, I think, uh, you know, the, that's what I, I would say. You know, it's, uh, it's at times very intense and it can feel personal even, but then you look back at the hold periods and you look at, at what you accomplished and you can, you can look back with pride, you know, over what you a- accomplished, you know, so that, that's how I think of it. You know, it's everything you can imagine all rolled into one emotions from one spectrum end of the spectrum to the other. 
But at the end of the day, after 20 years, boy, I couldn't think of a better place to be. You know, had I stayed, you know, in the service, had I stayed at GE, you know, my life would be very different than it is today. And I, I wouldn't change anything. I, I completely agree with you on the uh, private equity being like the athletes. This is absolutely the top and pinnacle. And a lot of people talk to me about people who, who I know who run, um, who don't run businesses talk about how easy and simple it is. It must be to be as easy and simple. It must be to be a chief exec, to run a company. You just sit in an office all day. You don't actually do anything. And, uh, you know, it's difficult in any world uh, running a business. And I, you know, sympathize with anybody who's growing a company and excited by it. I wouldn't be in any other place uh, seat myself now, but the in private equity, it's all different because it's not let's get some shareholder return. It's not let's keep the business at 30 million. It's not I can get to this so I can buy a Ferrari or Bentley or whatever else. This business goes from X to Z in this time frame, and it has to happen and you have to do it. And if it doesn't, my LPs don't give me money. I don't raise my next fund. You know, my firm goes out of business. You know, so it, it, yeah, it, it's, it's intense. But fun. At the very top. At the very top. You mentioned earlier about that kind of learning and development mindset, which is what I foresee as a key trait for anybody in in high performance and and a top performer. But what where do you get your influences from? What do you read? What do you watch? What do you listen to? Where you, where do you get your influences? I have a lot of typical sources that a lot of people you know. I, I read the Wall Street Journal every day. I, I get it online. Some people do it online. I walk out to my curb, you know, now in a pandemic and I go get it at the curb, bring it in. I like getting ink on my fingers, you know, so I'm old school. It's unfortunate, but I do think that the media has become biased. And, and I think that the media becomes biased on both sides. I'm not picking sides here. I'm just saying there, you know, the media t- wants to entertain, wants to tell us, you know, and people I think today are spending too much time in their own camps. Whatever camp you're in, you know, whatever you believe, you constantly are seeking out sources of information that tell you what you want to hear. And there's not enough challenging of convention. There's not enough, enough discourse between sides. You know, so from my perspective, I try to be very open-minded. I try to get from a lot of different sources, you know, whether it's the Wall Street Journal, it's Drudge or somebody else. I mean, it's like I have online resources, I have you know, I have print media resources. I do watch TV, um, you know, and I do read the occasional business book and, and try to tune in, you know, but information's coming at us from a lot of different places. It's not always vetted. It's not always accurate. It's not always true. And I think we all owe it to society in general to just to challenge our own personal thinking and to, to recognize and take information from multiple sources and then process it. I'm still trying to decide you know, from a social media perspective, what value it's serving humanity? And is it good or is it bad? Have we gone too far? You know, and comparing again, where I started my career when none of this existed to where I am today and and the amount of influencing that's there. You know, one thing I noticed on TV, you know, when, when, when a riot or something takes place, when something happens, how many people got an arm up in the air with cell phones? You know, does anybody in life ever truly live in the moment and enjoy the moment? And I'm not talking about a, a, a protest, but I mean, even a sporting event, you know, it's like the world is just all built around what can I record and what can I put on my Facebook page or what can I put on my Instagram feed or, you know, pick, 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 pick a platform. And I'm thinking to myself, 
boy, I want to be the guy who doesn't record a damn thing, you know, who, who just enjoys the moment. I want to enjoy my kids' soccer game or, you know, or, you know, whatever the event is or the birthday. And I can, I can look at, you know, later, you know, other people's, you know, videos of an event. So I, I'm, I personally am struggling with information overload and wondering whether all of the activity is actually adding value to humanity or not. You know, I love doing the podcast, love reaching out and talking to people. You know, um, one of the new apps I think that's uh, come out recently, Clubhouse, is, is uh, you know, this is, boy, here's an interesting place where thousands of people are randomly getting together and just talking, you know, and I, I was on it in the first first time. You know, it was kind of funny. I, I was on one, you know, a, a few weeks ago and I didn't even, you know, the guy who called me is a friend. I didn't realize he was putting me in his clubhouse feed. I didn't know there were 2,000 people listening to us talk until there were 2,000 people listening to us talk. Lo and behold, you know, all of a sudden my book popped back up number one in a bunch of different categories and a bunch of different formats. I'm like, wow, you know, the power of that platform is pretty incredible. So I think that, that we are still as a species, you know, still evolving and there's a lot of things happening really, really, really quickly to us now. And I'm still trying to figure out what's good, what's bad. And, and so I'm trying to get my information from many places and I'm trying to filter it and try to try to make sure that I'm, I'm getting balanced input, you know, on, on the world at large around me. Yeah, so it's a tough one. There's a lot of information out there and we are at that kind of information stage where, you know, we only pre-internet, we we didn't have that option to just jump online and Google it. Um, and now we can Google it, but are we getting the right information? Are we getting the information that we want or are we getting the information that whoever's paid most to get to the top or whoever's <laughs> the loudest at shouting it? So that can be uh, can be difficult. Have you um, have you ever been blindsided? And, and if so, what did you learn from it? So I've been blindsided, sure, a number of times in in my life, you know, in in my career. You know, I I, I don't want to be a a cliche and talk about the global pandemic, but boy, I I, I would tell you, if if you were in January last year, you know, no one, you know, so Europe shut down first, right? So let's go back to December, November. How fast life can change? You know, if you'd have told me, you know, back in October of last year, November, I, I'm sorry, of, of uh, 2019, how much the world was going to change in 2020, I, I wouldn't have believed it. I just wouldn't have believed it. You know, we're all going to run around wearing masks. Really? It, you know, that, that sounds strange. You know, essential businesses are going to be shut down. Entire industries are going to be put out of business. People by the millions are going to be you know, told to stay home and, and shelter in place. And, you know, y- yes, we're going to have the, the, the death that's associated with this pandemic, which is horrible, you know, and, you know, think of loved ones dying in a hospital and you can't interact with them, you know, at their worst time when they need you the most. I mean, just the world changed so dramatically, so fast that I, 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 you know, that, that can be blindsiding. And I, and I think for me personally, what did I learn? You know, when the, when the pandemic hit, I would say that I was slow to adapt. I was slow to, to really be insightful and to spend some time reflecting on what am I seeing? Now, I, I, I did some of that. When Europe started shutting down, we were doing quick assessments in the U.S., 
can our departments run remotely? You know, where, where do I have technology gaps? What can we do to fill those gaps before a shutdown comes over to this side of the pond? You know, how are we going to make that, that, that happen? And so we were doing some of that, but after, after it hit and the world locked down, you know, I, I think none of us really thought that the pandemic was going to last as long as it did. I know at first we thought ah, a couple of months, we'll hit summer, this thing goes away. Maybe it comes back in the fall. Maybe it doesn't. You know, and so no one, I don't think, really understood the length and the degree and magnitude that this was going to hit. And boy, I wish, you know, I was doing better job making contingency plans, you know, and, and, and I should have been reacting quarter by quarter, month by month, quarter by quarter. And instead, I, I seem to be lulled into sleep just thinking that, okay, well, the second half will be better than the first half. Eventually, this is, we're going to snap out of this. And I was slow to act. And so that's a great example for me that's recent you know, of a life-changing event for many on the planet, you know, you know, maybe you could hide behind global pandemic. But I think when we run a business, you know, people who run businesses, you know, we have a ship and the ship is our empire and we're sailing in an ocean and that ocean's the world and storms are going to come up. And if you've built a good ship, you're going to survive the storm. But, you know, how do you navigate? How do you make change and adapt to changing circumstances I personally felt I was slow. I was slow to the dance, and uh, but but finally woke up and and took strong action and reacted. Um, but I, I, you know, that's a classic example of, of me being slow. Well, you had a lot of growth during that period, uh, as you mentioned, with your, your VP of Sales uh, appointment, and I think that mirrors my kind of situation. I was very positive about where we'd come out of this and i was like we'll be locked down for two weeks and we'll all be back at work they're not going to do this you know this i never even foreseen it and i think our business was our business was very well prepared to move because we are a human capital business we've not locked down everybody's got laptops we're already built in the cloud like we can work from anywhere in the world providing we've got internet so that wasn't an issue it was just the pace of which i kind of realized how much of an effect this was going to have yeah. that is something i definitely did not and see. what you just mentioned i think is probably the best of you know if there is a best of you know call it a global pandemic it's the fact that the business world really you know solved the question you know, I think uh, I, again, was a little bit slow to adapt over time thinking, you know, is it good to have people working remotely, working at home? How do you measure productivity? You know, this is probably more of a problem. I'd rather have people together. And I think the global pandemic has definitely showed the entire world that, you know, first of all, productivity probably is up because people who are sitting at home, you know, can't go anywhere, do anything or are just bored. And so they're working more. They're not commuting. So there's there's more hours actually, you know, where I think people are, are productive. I know it's true for me, but we as an employer, as an example, you know, are going to really embrace the the remote concept. I need to hire the best talent I can find. I don't need to, to, to worry about where it lives or, you know, where it wants to live or exist. And for me, you know, there are some departments that we've learned, you know, must, you know, must be in person, you know, in order to, to fulfill their, their mission. But when a, a department does not have to be in person, you know, so an example, someone says, well, what's the example of that? Well, I do have 1900 guys in trucks that have to go pick up parts at warehouses. Warehouses have to be, you know, manned at some point during the day, even if it's off hours, you know, somebody has to receive inventory and move inventory around physically. And, you know, I I can't accept FedExes to an office that's closed. You know, I got to have a receptionist 
taking in Federal Express and UPS and the mail every day. So, that, you know, there are some things that need to be in person, but but we are going to embrace as an employer. And when, when you know, we're still shut down at our headquarters, even though we're an essential business, everyone's working from home, our guys and trucks are out in, in our customer environments every day. But for those of us who can work from home, we are still. And when we open back up, it's really going to be who wants to work at home, who wants to be part-time in the office versus full-time in the office versus no time in the office. And then we're going to redesign all of our office space to reflect, I need a lot more hoteling space. I need more meeting rooms. But you know, if I've got half of, half of my building wants to work at home, I guess I need less real estate. And that, that's probably my biggest lesson learned. We were about to add you know, about you know, 8,000 square feet onto a headquarters space to add some more people. You know, now coming out of a, a pandemic, you know, I'm, I'm guessing half of my workforce is going to work from home semi-permanently or fully permanently. And we're okay with that. So I think that was one good thing that, that came out of it. Been a lot of forced evolution in a short period of time. No, it's it's really changed, and we can we can see the adaption of technology, and we've seen that big technology growth in the in the public markets as well. And we've had to adapt a lot a lot more a lot of things into it, and accelerated where we yeah. would be uh, in the future. And that definitely is that work from home perspective, and that's changed a lot of people's uh, uh, perceptions of that. So, look, Adam, you've been, shared a lot of insight today, and I really appreciate that. If anybody wants to reach out to you, I hope you don't get bombarded from this because I'm sure a lot of people have a lot of questions to add and a lot of insight uh, to gain. But how, how is it best that somebody, somebody reach out, uh, reaches out to you? So I'm on LinkedIn. It's the one social media platform I'm most on. So you can look me up on LinkedIn, uh, Adam, you know, coffee, C-O-F-F-E-Y. I also have a website, adamecoffee.com. You can certainly look me up there and, and interact. I hear from people all the time from all over the world who, who read my book and, you know, reached out because I encourage that in the book. And uh, I love it. You know, it's been great. You know, I've heard so many great stories and, uh, it's to me helped make the world a much smaller place. And uh, I definitely have, have appreciated that. Uh, so that, that's how I'd say it. it's LinkedIn or adamecoffee.com. Perfect. We'll put the, we'll put the show notes, uh, the, all those details in the show notes. So anybody that wants to, uh, to reach out, or if you want to get a copy of the book, I'll, uh, I'll put that through Amazon uh, uh, link as well. So look, Adam, thank you very much for joining us. I've, I've really, really appreciated your insight here. It's been really super wealth of knowledge for me. And uh, so thank you very much. And I've no doubt everybody who's listened to this has uh, definitely picked something up. So thank you very much for that. Well, thank you for having me and uh, good luck to both you and uh, all your listeners. So appreciate it. Thanks for the opportunity. So as always, thank you very much to our listeners for joining us. And of course, should you ever need support with your private equity professionals or portfolio executive hiring, please do reach out to me. It's Alex Rawlings at Raw Selection. But till the next time, keep smashing it. Thank you for listening to the Private Equity Podcast on www.raw-selection.com.